invite you to grab your Bibles. Turn with me to Romans chapter number 4. Romans chapter number 4. And I apologize on the back of your uh, prayer bulletin. There is no outline. I have no uh, uh, <laughs> presentation here up above me. So we're going to have to go old school, okay? And uh, not feeling too well today. And so did not have the time afforded to putting together the outline and the presentation. And so I trust that uh, nonetheless, you and I will be able to enjoy God's Word, to learn much from it, and to glean m- much truth. And so just pay attention. We'll use God's Word tonight, as we always do, and allow that to be uh, our instruction this evening. As we dial- delve into Romans chapter 4, there's some interesting thoughts here that are presented to us. And uh, I think one of the thoughts that we have to uh, come to understand is that many people will say that they believe in salvation by faith. But when it comes to really uh, practical understanding and belief, they really don't believe in salvation by faith alone. Uh, We talked about last week, many religions and cults, they all add something to it. I I think the Catholic Church is probably one we point to, many others that follow in the the faith or the teaching of the uh, Catholic Church. But the Catholic Church is is very much a poster child for it. They greatly value faith in Christ. You talk to a Catholic, they're going to say, we value faith in Christ. But the fact is this, they don't believe in the blood of Jesus Christ alone for atonement, for salvation. The Catholic Church will say, yeah, we, we believe that Jesus Christ is a capable and powerful mediator for every believer. They will agree with that, but they will also say he is not the only mediator. See, so you start to learn that, that in many of these religions and teachings and doctrines and beliefs, that all of a sudden they're adding something. It's not in faith alone. Uh, they would certainly look at uh, the Catholic Church would highly value the Word of God, uh, the Scriptures, But that is not the authority alone in their minds. They'll look to a pope. They'll look to a council. They'll they'll look to decrees as being on the same level as the scriptures. All right, Antonio. Thank you. Okay. So the reality is this. They will look, and as they do in salvation, other parts of their teachings and beliefs, they will likewise add to uh, faith. They'll add to these other things. And so they don't embrace alone. Just this week, I was reading an article on free will baptist you know anything about free will baptist if you had the opportunity to talk to to one down in the south they're a little bit more prevalent and uh, i even have some relatives that are distant relatives that are part of a free will baptist church and they will believe they will tell you they they believe that christ's death on the cross of calvary his shedding of blood fully atoned for sin both past present and future Uh, that yet in that truth and in that fact you can still lose your salvation They literally believe that if you backslide enough, in their own terminology, if you backslide enough, God will come and cut you off from salvation. Now, I'll tell you, my friend, that is nothing but a works-based salvation. (laughs) If you have to live afterwards a certain level of of, uh, holiness or however you want to describe it in order to keep your salvation, you have turned it from being all of God and you've added your own works. And so we see that across the board. In many religions, uh, lordship salvation even is is that truth, and they add works on some level uh, to salvation. Uh, Reality is this, as we understand it, the the lone characteristic that sets apart the true gospel is the truth that salvation is by grace, through faith, plus nothing, adding nothing, minus nothing. So, plus nothing, minus nothing. Salvation, 
through faith and by grace. And yet every religion, every cult, they, they add something. They take away something. And so Paul comes to this chapter, chapter 4 of Romans. And he is writing to religious people to uh, really who on any level at any time, whether it's before salvation or after salvation, they add something to justification by faith alone. So in refuting it, Paul does something that I think is brilliant. I think that is certainly led of the Lord. He appeals to the Old Testament. In other words, if we go back to our court case perspective, he, he calls to the witness stand a very familiar person. He brings someone out of the Old Testament to come and witness to now everyone. And who is that? Well, verse number 1 of chapter 4. What shall we say then that Abraham our father? Who is Abraham? Well, if we were to describe Abraham, he's simply one of the best-known personalities of the Old Testament. If you think of Old Testament, you were to list many of the people of the Old Testament in a top five, top ten list, Abraham would be there, maybe even a top three list. He was a patriarch of the Jews like no other. Literally, they started with Abraham. It was to him that the promise of a great nation was given by God. Without him, there is no Israel in the Jews' man, in the Jews' mind, excuse me. He was a great man, not just a man of faith, but to them, he was a great man of action in works. One of the, the, the beliefs that I came across and the understanding of the Jews and their view of Abraham was this. They literally believed believe that Abraham uh, showed the virtue, the, compl- the fulfilling, the, com- the completing or complying to the entire law before the law was given. So they literally view Abraham saying, wow, he, he, in his virtue and how he lived, he fulfilled the law before the law was even given. So you can understand why they hold him in such high esteem. From a trial perspective, a, a court point of view, you see why Abraham is one of the best defenses that can be offered from a spiritual perspective for the works of man meeting something. Paul anticipates Okay, Paul, if you say that we can't work ourselves into heaven, if we can't be justified by our works, what about Father Abraham? What about Father Abraham? Look at him, Paul, and look at all that he did, and, and just this great man. And so literally, Paul is taking the, the, the greatest argument, the greatest uh, specimen of the human race, of mankind, and holding him up and say, okay, let's talk about Abraham. Let's consider, because in in many people's mind, uh, especially in the eyes of the Jews and others, religious people, he is the greatest specimen for someone being considered justified through works. You think he left his home country. He turned his back on the idolatry and his family. He, He left his home country and he became a nomad in obedience to God. He offered his son Isaac. And we could go on and on and on about the acts of obedience that Abraham performed or committed so paul anticipates many people pointing to abraham said look if there's somebody that's justified by works here he is it is our father abraham and it's not just among the jews josh and julia here they could expound much more on this but even the the muslims consider ibrahim um, to be a great prophet and messenger of god most importantly, the father of the Arab people through Ishmael, as he was to the Israeli people. He is mentioned extensively in the Koran, and in their teachings, he is held in great high esteem. So whether it's Judaism, whether it's Christianity, or whether it's even Islam, Abraham is highly revered. You and I understand later in this passage, as we'll see, verse 11 and other places, Abraham is called the father of all who believe. 
And so for us, he is valuable. For us, he is immensely treasured. And we look at when Abraham was a great man of faith, a great follower of God. If there is anybody who would have spiritual credit, it would be Abraham. That is exactly why we come to verse 1, and Paul speaks of in the flesh. What did he gain? What did all his living gain for him? What is it, uh, as he would appear to have done enough to merit the favor and salvation of God, he therefore is a perfect candidate, the one who would likely come to people's minds first, and the question is asked, who has done enough to earn salvation? And so Paul pens this question. What shall we say then that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh hath found? Literally, what did Abraham's fleshly pursuits, his obedience, his following after God get him? Did it justify him in God's sight? If that were the case, then Abraham would have a lot to glory in. His own works would merit much. Look at verse 2. So Paul answers the question first or addresses it. Verse 2, for if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory. And so it is true. You would have something to glory in. But notice it. But not before God. There's a hole in his works. There, there's something that's not right. Even if you look at the works of Abraham, there's something that, that, that shoots down the idea that he could stand before God and he could literally say, okay, God, look at my works. Allow me to, to enter into heaven. We would put it this way. In all of man's works, there is an element of imperfection. There is an element of imperfection. We might state it this way. When it comes to justification and salvation, literally in the eyes of God, a man's works might earn him the applause of men, but never the applause of God. So when it comes to justification, salvation, that's the context we're looking at. Our works, there is always an element of imperfection. It characterizes all the works of mankind, whether they're moral, whether they're spiritual, or of the physical world. Abraham, do you understand what Abraham was before God got a hold of him? He was likely an idolater. Or if the Chaldees were known for their many gods, he, he was brought out and no doubt himself an idolater. We understand his lack of faith in, say, in thinking God's going to fulfill his promise. Hence Ishmael, hence the entire trouble of the Middle East <laughs> for so many years, for thousands of years. Because he did not have enough faith in saying, okay, God's going to work this out in spite of everything and giving in to his wife and, and so forth. We understand that. What about uh, even the thought of the times that Abraham and Sarah traveled elsewhere, Egypt and other places, and he lied to save his own skin? Ah, oh, she's not my wife. She's my sister. Half truth, whatever the case may be, is still a lie. And so he is. So you begin to look and say, wait a second, in all of man's works, there is what? Imperfection. Imperfection. It characterizes everything that we do. Um, to argue, as some Jews would, and maybe even some Muslims, to argue that Abraham was perfect regarding the law is both absurd and easily proved wrong. Abraham was not perfect, therefore Abraham needed a perfect Savior. Paul is establishing a simple truth. Now, the fact is this. If Abraham could take a witness stand in a, in a courtroom, if he was able to, to speak and uh, test and, and, and testify, he, he would say and explain that he has fallen woefully short of the standard of perfect. And that tells us what are God's works characterized by? 
perfection. If man's works are characterized by imperfection, God's works are always characterized by perfection. What God does, God does perfectly. In the moral realm, in the, the spiritual realm, and even in the physical realm. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, as we look ahead to our, our, our visit to the Creation Museum and the Ark, I, I enjoy reading about creation. I enjoy reading about God's creative work and just the intricacies. I, I mean, you think about it, how hard we will work as humans. And I was reading something talking about how we'll try to come up with the sharpest needle, the sharpest razor that could ever, and yet go and look at a bee and its ability to sting you perfectly. Who created that? Well, God did. And, and you stick both of those under a magnifying glass, what happens? Well, you begin to see what's wrong with the razor, but you look at the stinger of a bee, and you're even more amazed by the design. It enhances God's perfectness. I had a friend that taught anatomy, and I not to get into details, but many, many moons ago, he and I taught in the same Christian school, and he taught anatomy on a college level, and he and I would, I would just listen to him asking questions about the body and everything else. He would share some things, and just some amazing things. And again, I, I'm not going to get into too much detail, but I think one of the amazing details of the, the human body is our ability to reproduce. In that ability, both what a man and a woman bring in the reproduction process, don't worry, we're not going to get anything, but what's amazing, now get this, this is truly amazing. If you were to study the, uh, the body, you will understand that there are parts in places in our bodies that are certain temperatures, and if it's off 10th, moving to 100th degree, you would not be able to reproduce. Little pockets within both a female and a male's body that, that things are perfectly designed where everything is maintaining life and then can produce life. Can I ask you, how have humans done at reproducing life? We are imperfect. But I'll tell you, my friend, God is perfect. And that such design reflects, but boy, all that God does is perfect. And the trial and error and the uh, complete unsuccessful ability of mankind to reproduce what God does just proves our works are imperfect. Both on the physical realm, but also certainly on a spiritual realm. And so the fact uh, uh, remains, each one of us are full of flaws, and so therefore, so are the works we produce. Paul is exposing Abraham. The Jews will look and say, that's a perfect man. He, our patriarch Abraham, he was everything the law could dream a person could be. Now, wait a second. On closer inspection, let's bring the magnifying glass to his life. And all of a sudden, we see holes in that argument. We begin to see that, wait a minute, like you and I, he is not perfect. That even in his good works, there's issues. There's fear. There's doubt. There's all kinds of things across. Disobedience. And so, even this evening... A simple consideration would prove this to be true in our lives. Let me ask you a question. Have you, in your service to God, maybe it's uh, serving in the local church or even uh, doing uh, disciplines of reading the Bible and praying and, and witnessing, have you always done the things you've done for the Lord out of a perfect heart? I mean, have you and I ever had a critical, complaining attitude when we did something for the Lord? Yes, I'm out on visitation, but man, it's so hot. What is this? This is like July and September here in Michigan. I tell you what. 
Have we ever complained? Man, people just keep slamming the doors on my, on my face. Why are we even out here? This is a waste of time. And have we ever done a good work, but it's been very imperfect? The questions can go on. Have you ever just gone through the motions? Are you here tonight just going through the motions? <laughs> no, I'm at church. Isn't that enough? I'm not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together. Have you ever had the wrong motive for doing it? Your good work, whatever it may be, whether it's connected to the church or it's just a part of the Christian life, have you ever been doing something with the wrong word? Have you ever just done something to get it done? I guess I got to teach a Sunday school class. I guess I got to usher. I guess I, guess I got to work the nursery. <laughs> Our good works. These are all good works. I, I got to read my Bible. If I don't read my Bible, I'm not a good Christian. So I just rush through it. I'll get it done. Um, have you ever just not given your best? Now, if we step back, in reality, I, I would dare say, and you can prove me wrong after the service, please come talk to me, but I would dare say, especially beginning with this preacher, that there have been times that you and I have, not, have done something, a good work, without a perfect heart. Now, there have been times in our life where we've done the good work, we've done something that the Bible commands, and we have done it imperfectly. We have not done it with a pure, perfect heart. And it's exactly what Paul is getting to, that you and I are just like Abraham. If I may describe it in an illustration, all of us are in the same boat, as we like to say. And yet that boat is sinking in our sins, and we can do nothing about it through our own strength. So Paul asks a very crucial question. Verse number three, the first part. For what saith the Scriptures? Now, that's a good place to go to, isn't it? Let's go to the authority on the subject. And I want you to see, this is where he really begins his reasoning from the Scriptures. See, Paul was very good at this. Acts chapter 24 and verse 25. He stood before a guy named Felix. And the Bible says that Paul reasoned with him of righteousness and the judgment to come. Do you remember what Felix's response was? He trembled. Now, he put it off. But he trembled. Because what did Paul do? Now listen to me. What did Paul do? Paul did exactly what he's been doing in Romans chapter 3 and now in Romans chapter 4. He reasoned before Felix of what? Righteousness. The righteousness of God and the incapability of mankind to produce their own righteousness. So he reasoned with Felix and Felix trembled. Felix came to understand, whoa, Holy Spirit convicted him. And he said this, um, I'm going to call back to you when I'm for, at a convenient time. Kind of put it off, that conviction. But I want you to understand that Paul was well practiced in his reasoning with someone, trying to open their eyes to the truth of the Scripture and the Holy Scriptures. Notice the rest of uh, the Scripture, excuse me, the Holy Spirit. Notice the rest of verse 23. For what saith the Scriptures? Okay, so let's look at the Scriptures. Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. So Paul quotes, and you can look there, uh, Genesis chapter 15. In fact, we got time. Let's turn there. Genesis chapter 15. And let's look at verse number 16. Genesis 15, 16. We're introduced and much is said here about Abraham in Genesis 15. We look down at verse 16 and uh, kind of picks him up after he's dealt with Lot and so forth. And this is part of the, uh, the covenant given to Abraham by God. Uh, Genesis chapter 15, look at verse 16. And uh, Genesis 15, 16. Let's find it here. 
That's not right. Go back to verse 6. I shouldn't say 16, sorry. Genesis 15, 6. Speaking to Abraham, actually back up verse 5. That'll kind of give us a context. And he brought him forth abroad. And that's speaking of God to Abraham and said, Look now toward heaven. Tell the stars that thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. Now notice verse 6. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Now, same statement Paul's quoting here, there in verse uh, number 3. For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. So Paul's saying, now let's, let's get through what you're saying, his works and everything, because that's flawed. There's holes in his good works. They are not justifying him. But let's dig deeper and say what from heaven's perspective, how was Abraham justified? So we go back to the Scriptures because the Scriptures do not lie. They tell the truth. And a closer look at the life of Abraham, it's not his works, though they may have for the most part been good and he was obedient. Those didn't gain him the before-mentioned righteousness of God of Romans chapter 3, but rather it was that he believed God. See, this is not Paul's statement. In other words, Paul's not introducing a new gospel. This is crucial. Because the Jews would have accused Paul. Paul, you're making this up. This is nothing. You're, you just come up with a new belief. This Christianity thing that you used to persecute, that you used to put on trial, this is, this is just because of this recent prophet or this, this charlatan known as Jesus Christ. Paul, this is a, you, you just come up with this. Paul is using the Scriptures to prove that this is nothing new, that God in heaven wrote it back in Genesis, that you and I are justified. We are made righteous. How? Through faith. Through faith. Kind of goes to what we said last Wednesday that God, through every dispensation, does not change the economy. You come to Him by faith. Literally in Genesis chapter 15, in verse 6, did you catch the terminology? It was imputed unto Him for righteousness. And so, this is a heavenly authored concept, one that's been at work since the beginning of mankind. Now, I want you to notice verse number 3 here in Romans. Uh, it puts the spotlight on two important words or thoughts that flow throughout the chapter. This is really neat. The first you can imagine is belief, right? He believed. It's belief and faith. It's that which is crucial for grace and atonement to be applied to our account. Trusting Christ alone for salvation. And so, Paul wants to get that truth across to all because all of us can believe. No, all can maybe do certain works, but all of us can believe. And so Paul wants to get that truth. Now, the second truth or word or thought that flows throughout this whole passage, and we'll see faith and belief and trusting reiterated many times over. But the second is a Greek word that is found at least 11 times in this chapter. And it's a word that's greatly crucial to our discussion and understanding of this. In this verse, the Greek word is translated as counted. You see that there, verse 3, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. In verse 4, it's translated as reckoned, reckoned. And then in the next verse, it's translated as imputeth. That's verse 6 there. In fact, what's interesting in verses 4 through 11, 4 through 11, it's found in every single verse except verse 7. So this one Greek word, Paul is obviously repeating and reiterating, saying, hey, get this, understand this truth. Uh, Belief, yes, that's going to be repeated. But here's this word. It's found in each one. The Greek word is lagazimai, uh, and it is literally a banking term, lagazimai. 
It's, again, translated as reckoned and counted and imputeth and imputed 11 times over here. We'll see each one as we continue our study. But it's a banking term, as we understand, means to put to one's account. It is what we have studied last week, week before, about the idea of imputation. It was imputed. Paul makes it crystal clear that faith in God is what led to righteousness being imputed to Abraham's account, not his works. Look at verse 4. This is a great part of classical reasoning. Now, to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned, not imputed of grace, but of debt. Okay, classic reasoning. Now, understand, what is it that Paul is explaining? What is he saying in that statement? Well, he's simply pointing out this truth. If one works for something, then grace is no longer active. Grace is no longer valid. Then it is what? Well, a debt. That's the terminology used. If you work for it, if he works to gain the reward, then that's no longer grace. Grace doesn't come to play. It's not even on the table. If you work for it, then God owes it to you. It's of debt. God is indebted to you. So what he's saying is, okay, believer, Jew, Muslim, if you think that Abraham was justified by his works, you are literally saying that God is indebted to Abraham. Now, can I tell you, my friend, our God is indebted to no one. So Paul is explaining this truth before we get caught up in false doctrine and false teaching that you've got to work and earn, that your works will justify you. We know this to be true. If you work for a job, if you work for a company, that company is indebted to you to give you your salary, your payment. It literally needs to be reckoned to you, imputed to your account. Literally today we have a term called direct deposit. And many of your checks, your salary just gets imputed to what? Your account, your bank account. You don't see it. It just goes electronically, and the money is imputed to your account. Does your boss walk out to you today and say, listen, this is payday, and I just want you to know we sent your grace to your account? No way. He says, listen, we sent what we owed you. You worked two weeks. We sent you your salary for two weeks. If you didn't get it, you wouldn't go up to them and say, hey, why weren't you gracious to me today and, and give me my two weeks' pay? No, no, you say what? Why haven't you given me what you owe me? See, Paul understands this classic reasoning. The reality is if you work for it, you deserve it. It's owed to you. Now, that's a little, I mean, even modern courts come to understand that. We've seen them order companies to pay back wages because an employee has been cheated in one way or the other. Now, here's the scary thing about this truth. If it is a debt, then there will be people who stand before God at the judgment time and tell Him that He owes them heaven. We know it. There's a verse for it, Right? Many will come to God and say, Lord, Lord, have we not cast out devils? Have we not done this? Have we not done this? Have we not committed these many works? You owe me heaven, God. Now think about that for a moment. Do you really think that, you, that God owes you and me something? A wicked sinner, as we have seen in Romans chapter 1 through 3, that as vile and corrupt as I am, that that doesn't flow with our flesh and our pride. But reality is that's who I am. And to stand before an almighty God and says, listen, you owe me. That's blasphemy as much as anything. 
And I'll tell you, friend, there'll be many in that day. I, I think we'll be surprised how many people go before God and try to say, well, you owe me. Look what I did for you. And look what I did here. And Lord, Lord, look what I did here. And all this, the, this life that I lived and this, these, these disciplines of the Christian life. I did these things. I deserve heaven. You are indebted to me. Well, boy, when you put it in that light, when Paul presents it to us in such a way, it really reveals the ludicrousness of such beliefs, doesn't it? That you and I can work and earn our way to heaven, that we would literally stand before an almighty God and say, ah, you owe me. Now look at verse 5, and so this thought flows greatly from verse 4. But to him that worketh not, hmm, to him that understands, you can't work it. But believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is, here's the word again, is counted, imputed for righteousness. So to him that is incapable of doing enough, of working hard enough, of working good enough, and that's all of us, to acquire what we desire, there is one hope spiritually and only one. What is that? Believe on the one. And how does he put it? That justifies the ungodly. Now, I will tell you, my friend, you may uh, not grasp the meaning of that or the, the, the emphasis of it, but I'll tell you, that's one of the greatest titles for our God is that right there, the justifier of the ungodly. Can I tell you tonight, I sure am thankful that our God is a justifier of the ungodly, especially me. I'm glad that he justifies me. How does he do it? Through faith through belief. Notice the statement here. It's literally employing us to turn to the one who is ready to impute Christ's righteousness to our account to do what we cannot do for ourselves. And once that belief is enacted upon Christ and God, then you and I will be like Abraham. And and that's really what he's getting to in this chapter, isn't he? I, I reference verse 11. If you were to glance down to verse 11, you'll see in the middle that he might be the father of all them that believe. Now, he'll develop that thought and that idea in a contrast to the fleshly father of the Jews. But what he's saying is this. Hey, you and I are just like Abraham. Don't look at Abraham and say, wow, that was a, a, a mighty man of God that did all these wonderful things and works. And that's why he was justified in God's sight. That's why he was called the friend of God three times over over in the scriptures look at him and he is something i want to be like that you want to be like abraham believe in god and it will be imputed to you for righteousness just as it was for abraham and that is not to the glory of abraham that is not to the glory of you or i that is the glory of god paul is making a tremendous reasoning presentation here now notice it as if that wasn't enough Paul brings to the witness stand another Old Testament hero of the Jews and many others, David. Look at verse number 5 or 6, excuse me. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Again, even Islam recognizes David, calling him an illustrious prophet in addition to being the king of Israel. Uh, He's credited with writing a holy book, Zabur, in the scriptures. What is he called? He's called a man after God's own heart. And certainly, if there's anyone like Abraham, if there's someone after Abraham who had done enough to uh, uh, earn what he received spiritually, wasn't it David? 
I mean, David, a man after God's own heart. Here is a guy who he had to have done enough works and good for God to earn salvation. Well, Paul then says, okay, let's see what David says himself. Let's understand what, Paul, what David writes of. This doctrinal truth. Hold your spot, and we're going to flip back and forth. Turn to Psalm chapter 32. That's what's quoted in verses 7 and 8 specifically. But let's turn to Psalm 32, if you will, with me. Psalm 32. We're going to read in uh, verse number um, 1 and verse number 2, Psalm 32. He quotes this. Paul does. He references David, and he says, okay, here, here's what David said. You look at David and say, man, after God's own heart, he, he must have been justified because of his great works, the things that he did and, uh, for God. But Psalm 32, 1 and 2, notice it. Blessed, here he references the blessedness, right? Paul did. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. We've studied this passage many times before. We've come to understand that it was written after Nathan the prophet had come to David. He had confronted him with his sin with Bathsheba, his adultery. I want you to notice this. David doesn't write immediately. He does not appeal um, to, uh, okay, wait a minute. God, now come on. Yeah, I, I slipped up. I made a mistake, but I am one of your choice servants. I killed Goliath. I, I've done all, I, I, and I didn't lay a hand on Saul. I, I waited my time. I allowed you, and I ran. I, I defeated the enemies of both Israel and your name. I've defeated the Philistines and many others. I've led this nation to worship you, to follow after you. I've prepared for my son to, to, to build the temple. And I mean, he could go on and on and on about all the things that he had done. If what? If our works gained us something in God's eyes. But that's not what he does. Interestingly, he presents in these two verses the two doors of imputation. The two-way road, the the two-lane highway of imputation, if we might put it that way. He doesn't spend time glorying in his own spiritual achievements, claiming their merit as the basis for what? Forgiveness. That's not what this passage is about. Literally, this passage is, wow, I am so blessed. Not because I earned it. Not because I served God in my works. No, no. I am blessed because there is a great God in heaven. He's exalting God. He's saying, this is all about God. I'll tell you, my friend, as Abraham got it in Genesis, David gets it as he writes in Psalms, and Paul is just reiterating what these two great patriarchs, these two great heroes of the faith understood a long time ago. It's all of God and none of me. Paul, again, is not presenting something new. He's saying it to Jews and others alike, look, look at David. God has already been operating this way since the beginning of mankind. And look at the lives of these two great heroes of the faith, Abraham and David, these two heroes of the Jewish history. And they understood it. It's interesting. You look at verse 2 here of Psalm 32, verse 2, as Paul does in verse 8 back here in Romans chapter 4. David speaks to the fact, now get this, notice it, verse 2, he says this, Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord, notice this, imputeth not our iniquity. So what he's saying is this, and this is a great truth about imputation. This is what Paul, why Paul emphasizes the idea of imputing, 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 reckoning, and so forth. Here's the one lane of this two-way highway of imputation. 
First of all, our iniquity is not imputed unto us. What does he mean by that? It means that it's not on our account. Now, wait a minute. You sinned, so did I. We failed the, the law of God. We, as he says later on, the, the law has existed to show that we are transgressors. So I have broken the law. But wait a minute, if I have sinned, shouldn't my account be full of sin? Shouldn't it be there? And here's the great truth. Not through your works does it happen, but through faith in Jesus Christ it happens. What happens? Christ takes from your account your sins, and he imputes them to the account of Jesus Christ. And he took those sins to the cross of Calvary, and he paid for every single one. So that sin that you and I committed today, that sin that we committed 20 years ago, that sin we'll commit if we're still alive in 20 years. It was imputed from our account, not there any longer, and it was imputed to God's Christ account. So that he that knew no sin became what? Sin for us. It was imputed to his account. Now Paul understood that. David understood that. David said, wow, you don't impute my sins. You know what I just committed with Bathsheba? And he understood. And he said, I have sinned against God. And that's crucial. He confessed it. He understood it. But yet at the same time, he realized a great truth. Okay, God, my, my good things, killing Goliath and leading the nation has outweighed my sin. He didn't say that. What he said was this. You are a great God because you have not imputed my sins to my account. You've taken them and you've imputed them to Christ's account. And that is a great truth of salvation and justification. And he doesn't leave it there. Look at verse 1 of the same passage. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Now that's an interesting statement because here back in verse 7 of Romans 4, Paul puts it this way, saying, blessed are they who are, whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are, again, covered is the statement here. What's that? Well, that's the other lane of the imputation highway. David speaks of our sins being covered. That's the righteousness of God being applied to in that work of atonement. They are covered like we saw as the blood was applied to the mercy seat last week. God's righteousness is literally imputed to our account. So you can think of it this way. Our sins covered and imputed to Christ's account. And what happens? Well, by faith, Christ's righteousness is imputed. That banking term is applied to our account. So one is literally removed and covered, and it is placed over here in Christ's account as he went to the cross of Calvary. Christ's righteousness from the perfect life is imputed to us through faith. And so when God looks at our account, he sees only the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's a great truth. What's, I think, even more amazing than, about this is that Paul says it in Romans, but David said it a long time ago. Abraham understood it back in Genesis. I, I'm not going to earn anything. I, I can't work my way into the God's favor of salvation. That's not going to happen, but I can believe in him. And here's the truth that Paul brings out as even he alludes to it. David is acknowledging and rejoicing in God's work of atonement and imputation. He is literally in Psalm 32. He is thanking God that his account does not hold his sins but Christ's righteousness. Not a new doctrine but one that God has been presenting throughout the years of man's history. 
And I, can I tell you, notice it again, and we're done. He says this in verse 8. Blessed is the man. That's what David wrote. How did Paul describe it? Verse 6. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man. What man? But to him that worketh not, verse 5, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Now, I want to tell you tonight, you know what you are tonight? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a blessed person. There is a blessedness that you and I get to enjoy that those who do not put their faith and trust in Christ do not have the righteousness of Christ imputed to their account, their sins covered and imputed to the account of Christ. They cannot enjoy that. We know from the Beatitudes, the idea of blessed is happy, joyous. You and I have a joy and a happiness that good works can't obtain. Living a good life, giving away money, uh, uh, doing things for other people, that cannot obtain the happiness and joy that is found not in anything we do, but in what Christ did for us and our faith in it. Now, I want to tell you, my friend, that ought to give us a, some pep to our step every day. See, my joy today can be rooted and founded and grounded in what? Not something I've done today. Oh, praise the Lord, I've witnessed to somebody. Praise the Lord, I've ministered this way. Praise the Lord, I've done this Christian discipline. We ought to do those things, and those things ought to bring joy. But when the bottom line hits, our joy comes from this reality. I am blessed because my faith has been imputed for righteousness. We stand blessed tonight. And I hope you and I will go from this place thinking about how good we have it. Not because we deserve it or God owes us something, but because of God's goodness and His grace. We'll continue in Romans chapter 4 and some of these great truths that Paul presents to us next week. For the time being, Brother Cliff, you'll bring the prayer request to us. Let me 